Hello, and welcome back to To Lead is to Learn, the podcast where we explore the dynamic world of leadership together. Whether you're a returning listener or joining us for the first time, I'm truly grateful you've chosen us as your companion upon your leadership development journey. Our mission here is simple, to empower you with the knowledge, skills, and insights needed to excel in leadership. But before we dive into today's episode, I want to express my sincere thanks to each one of you. Your trust in us means the world, and it's an honor to be part of your growth. Now, speaking of growth, did you know that To Lead Us To Learn is brought to you by Lambda Solutions? At Lambda, we specialize in leadership development and coaching, and we're passionate about helping individuals like you become the best leaders you can be. If you're looking to take your leadership skills to the next level, or if your organization is seeking guidance to achieve its leadership goals, I invite you to explore what we have to offer. Simply visit our website at www.thelambda.co.uk to discover more about how we can assist you directly. Thank you for being part of our community. Now, let's dive into today's episode and continue learning and growing together. In today's special episode, we will be talking to an experienced leader about their experience of leadership, challenges they have faced, and any thoughts and visions for the future. Like many people, I've had a bunch of things over my life that I wanted to do, sometimes for a long time, and did nothing about. If there's a book that you want to read, and it hasn't been written yet, you must write it. But for a long time, those roles were exciting and inspiring. We throw babies out with bathwater without even noticing it drained by this work. Like if you can go hair speed all the time, great, but the whole point of that fable is that you can't. If you start doing this straight away with somebody, they'll get weirded out by it. I'm not the right coach for everybody. Like life was seriously intense for them. I wasn't sure they really got it, so I I started asking, even if they want to leave. But it's possible I would find that hell. The best time to break the rules is when breaking the rules is more in the spirit of the rules than sticking to the rules. Without further ado, here's Robbie Swale. One of the first questions I always ask just to start the conversation going is that everyone has a story of how they've reached the level they're at, where they're currently working. Can you tell us the background to yours? Yeah. And you're right. Everyone does have a story, don't they? And I'm always aware when I'm doing this that I'm telling like a version of it. And hopefully, because we've got time today, we'll get into all kinds of bits of that. In the the kind of shortish version, um, I had a kind of bunch of different jobs in the first decade or so of my career. And um, that varied like across sectors and business functions. And when one thing was coming to an end, I made a fairly active move that I wanted to work in the arts. And so I worked quite hard to do that and was successful in that kind of career change, which led me to being the leader, the manager of two art centers in the north of England, where I was living at the time. And then there came a time a few years later where I realized that wasn't it. You know, if there's something that is going to be it, I knew that it wasn't that. Um, I checked it by moving jobs to like check that it wasn't the place or that I'd been there too long or something like that. And it wasn't. 
the first career change was kind of active. The second one was more strategic, um, partly because it was harder to work out where I might go next because I'd kind of followed the path that some people say, which is like, well, what do you enjoy? And I was like, well, at the time, I love the theater. I love music. I still do love music and somewhat love the theater. So like, I'll work in that. And then, then I was like, well, if that's not it, where do I go now? And so it took more work to find the next thing. It took some false starts and various uh, experiments with how to think about that. And I was really lucky. I wish I had a coach at the time, but I was lucky to come across some of the right people, some of the right kind of blogs and frameworks that I needed to kind of get through that. And in the end, that led me to doing a coaching training via, like I say, a couple of false starts in different places and ways. That training was in about 2015. And um, I got to it thinking, well, look, coaching could be the thing for me for the next part of my career. But even if it isn't, this will be really useful for me to have as a set of skills wherever I end up next. But eight years on as we're having this conversation, so far it has been the thing. So I coached like around other work for about, uh, what, like two years, um, just under that. And then I've been full-time coaching since 2017. And the way that I think about coaching and my work these days is there's really three things that I'm interested in. I'm interested in the craft of coaching. Um, so that's partly how we met, because I really believe that coaching has a role to play in facing the challenges that humanity has in the 21st century. And I love and find it fascinating and important to help coaches develop themselves, develop their craft, develop their businesses so that we have the workforce, the army that we need of coaches for the kind of the next phase. But if people are interested in that, they can find that at thecoachesjourney.com. That's the kind of brand for that. I'm really interested partly because it's my own journey in creativity. But the way I think of it is I'm particularly interested in the bit between knowing that we want to do something and actually doing it. And like many people, I've had a bunch of things over my life that I wanted to do sometimes for a long time and did nothing about. And sometimes in the end, I did those things and sometimes I didn't. And I got really interested in that. Like, what is the difference between the things that we do and the ones that we don't? And how do we help people bridge that gap? Um, and that's where I have a series of books called the 12-Minute Method series and a, and a podcast called the 12-Minute Method podcast as well. And so that's that bit of work. But the truth is that the majority of my actual work is in the third area, which is leadership. And we could talk about that in lots of ways. But one of the things that I'm most interested in is why I believe coaching is so important is the world that we mostly exist in now, the workplaces, the, the challenges that we face are complex. And actually, to meet the challenges of that, and I know this in my life, it's what I wish I'd had when I was doing the career transition or working in the arts, is that the space and the support that coaching can bring to tell people to do their best thinking and build capacities so that they're more able to deal with the complexity of the world. That's like that's where most of my work takes place, and it's often with leaders or, or entrepreneurs in, in different industries. I really hooked onto something you said right at the beginning, which was where you were like, you knew it was not it. So how did you know? What was the thing that told you this isn't it? This isn't where I'm meant to be? Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to slow down with that. So the way I remember it now, a lot of it was about energy. And again, I think some people listening will recognize this. So I was really proud of some of the things that we made happen when I worked in those art centers. And I'm really glad they both still exist now, which after the pandemic for, for an art center is not a guaranteed thing. Both of them receive relatively small amounts of external funding. So they both still exist now. And I worked there, what, like more than 10 years ago. So I'm really glad that I played a part in that. Some of the things that happened in those towns, I'm really proud of that they happened. But the making them happen itself 
was exhausting for me in some ways. And so part of it was that. It was like, I'm drained by this work. And somewhere in me, for some reason, I had like a an idealism which said it doesn't have to be like that, right? Work could or should be able to be something that's energizing. You know, you'd be tired at the end of it, but it shouldn't be drained, that, that kind of distinction. But also, there was something happening for me about um, scale of impact. So arts and culture, I think, plays an absolutely vital role in the lives that we live. And I don't think anyone could really deny that. Like, not now Netflix is, like, just impossibly large, just, like, unfeasibly. Like, everyone is consuming. Now, it's not that everything on Netflix is art, but it's, like, the desire for stories, the desire for compelling characters and narratives. It's, like, it's so obvious that people want that. So arts and culture is important. But working in the arts in the way that I was felt like quite a small game in some ways. Like, it was really important to Otley and Northallerton, the towns in Yorkshire that I was working in, but even there, it wasn't everything, you know, because people would go to York from Northallerton or they'd go to Leeds from Otley and they would get more stuff there or they'd drive a long way to go to a gig. And so one possibility for me that I thought about was to keep moving to bigger places, right? You know, and I had a job interview once when they reopened the Barbican in York, which is a music venue. And if I'd got that, that would have been interesting because that was for the company that runs the MEN and various other big arenas, you know, gig venues across the country. Like that would have been an interesting path for me to go down. But one of the things that I really remember knowing it's not it is for quite a while, since I'd first imagined moving into leadership in, in the arts, I had had those ideas that maybe it was the job at the company that ran the MEN, maybe it was running the South Bank Centre or Sheffield Theatres, which is an amazing venue where I knew the CEO a little bit, who'd been a kind of mentor of mine. For, for a long time, those roles were exciting and inspiring and aspirational for me. And then at some point, coupled with that energy thing and the questions about the arts, and maybe there's somewhere broader I need to look, was this sense, oh, actually, it's possible that I'd enjoy running Sheffield theatres like Dan Bates, who was this mentor of mine, did, but it's possible I would find that hell. That's a big risk, right? So to have to spend the next 15 years building up to getting a job like that, when I have a pretty strong intuition it might be hell, felt, okay, probably this isn't it. You then came across coaching you said that sort of like then filtered in what was your first experience of coaching and how did that make you feel like quite a lot of people my my actual first experience of being coached was only after i'd started the coaching training uh it's not that's not quite true like working with a professional coach let's say so i first came across coaching weirdly because my my brother he wasn't really working in coaching at the time he created this um it was like an interview series you know, now there's like uh, online summits everywhere coming out. You can't like move for online summits. But this was 2011 or something. So it was before that was such a thing. And they created this um, interview series, which is part, I think, of what, what sparked for me that maybe there's more beyond, beyond arts and culture or beyond the charity sector, which was about the emerging field, they called it, of conscious business. So what if business can be about more than just the bottom line? And on that, lots of the people asking questions were coaches. Uh, you know, because they were like live calls and it was like, I'm Alice and I'm a coach and I'm in Denver, Colorado, and I'd like to ask this question. And I was like, this is so boring. Like, who are all these coach people? Like, where are the speech marks real people? That was the first time I came across it. But as part of my career change with some of the, they weren't quite false starts, but they were, how do I, how do I make my money while I'm working out what's next? One of the, the jobs I have was in an organization called the Claw Leadership Program, which is a leadership program for, I mean, there's two actually one for the social sector in the UK, the charity sector, and one for the arts sector. And I was working in the arts one. 
And as part of all the training we did at Claw, um, the leaders who came on our programs got coaching skills, at least introduction, at least an afternoon or morning and often a full day. And on the big program, they got a full day and then they were assigned a coach throughout the program and, and various other things. The first time I was actually coached was either at one of those workshops on Claw or it was an introduction to coaching weekend with the Coaching Academy. By some definitions, I think they say they're the biggest coach training provider in the world. The main reason being they offer these free weekends all the time as part of their enrollment process. And therefore, they are training an extraordinary number of people at a very shallow level, you know, because you can't go that deep in two, three days. And like I said, I had some false starts. Like I went to that coaching academy workshop um, and I was like, I don't think this is it. This doesn't feel it. I can't feel it. And I actually, after that, I got much more interested in, in some counseling, psychotherapy, open days that I'd done as part of this career change. And I went as far as a two-term course at one of those places. And it was only when I got to the end of that and I realized psychotherapy is really long trainings, part-time. It's like, am I in for the next four years with this? And just get a kind of sense in the body of, no, I'm not. So what next? And then I came to the coach training that I did, which was a kind of startup coach training. It's sort of resting now. I'm called the coaching school. And that felt right. So again, it was like a lot of intuition for me, a lot of, I was really developing my intuition over that career change. And in that place with the right people, and then I got a coach, they assigned a professional coach through that program, which I think is just a, it's incredible to me that that doesn't happen in every coach training everywhere, because there's so much you can learn as a coach from being coached on a, on a program like that. But for me, the experience then was something really different. It was like the space to think. I remember kind of sitting in, I remember where I was sitting with that coach. It's a good friend of mine now called Mike Toller. And I remember sitting, I remember where we sat for like, at least I can remember, can picture at least three of those six coaching sessions that we did in 2015, because they were, it was like, it's really quite something to be testing your thoughts with somebody else and finding them moving forward and, and that kind of thing. You said about doing psychotherapy training and then coming on to coaching. What is the major difference between like counseling, psychotherapy, coaching, mentoring? Because they're all kind of interweaven a little bit, but then there are separate entities. What's the difference for you? You're right. They are really into interwoven. I think we sometimes get a little bit too worried about like which one is which. For sure, I've had clients who were definitely the right people for me to be working with, who a counselor would have done work on the same the same thing with. And it would have just been slightly different work for people with different qualifications, but that person would have been, was well served by coaching, but could have also been well served by a counselor. So, I mean, look, there are a few ways for people who've never come across those things before. I guess the two really common ways to make the distinctions, and it's important to say, these are a little too simplistic. It's not as simple as this, but would be coaching is broadly forward-looking. So we're always, okay, we're here in this moment. Where do you want to be? And what needs to change in you in order to get there? And the coach doesn't give the answers. The coach, the practice of coaching is about supporting somebody to do their best thinking and create insights that way. The mentor, on the other hand, mostly would be forward-looking, but has an expertise. So I do this, for example, with some of my clients on, on the Coach's Journey community. You know, there's, there's the move into mentoring when that's in service of somebody and when you can. You know, I, I had clients this year who are, you know, the CEO of a design company or the CEO of a software company. Like none of my experience, even my experience being effectively the CEO of a small charity has any real relevance. Like I can't give them advice, but I can coach them uh, because of the skills and frameworks that I bring. And then the counseling and psychotherapy, we could say, or again, it's a little simplistic for this, 
that the way that the different future is created for somebody through counseling and psychotherapy is by more inward focus and more backward focus. But what's interesting, Chris, more recently, Mike, so Mike, who I mentioned before, who was my first coach, he's also a practicing psychotherapist. And we did some work together training coaches, um, resurrecting that training that we'd done when we were starting out. And then we're sad that it had kind of rested because of the, the startup had kind of come to its end. The distinction that Mike makes really is actually that it's not about the topic at all, which is often where lots of people fall down. It's like, oh, this is too much feeling, so it must be psychotherapy. And this is all about goals, so it must be coaching. And Mike said the, the much more useful distinction, and this, this resonates with me and the, and the work that I've done, is how is the person? So if the person is functioning in their daily life, then as a coach, you can work with them and you can work with them on whatever you want. But if they're not functioning in their daily life, if they're struggling to get out of bed, if there are aspects of normal daily life that are really incredibly difficult for them, then that's the kind of time when it would be in some ways out of bounds for a coach who doesn't have that kind of depth of training to work with that person. Because there's more chance of doing harm, essentially, in that kind of place, some, something like that. And so that's definitely been true for me when I've, when I've sat with potential clients and I've had the intuition, no, I think this is not, coaching is not the right thing for you right now. I've had to kind of have that conversation a number of times over the years. Even before I'd had that distinction from Mike, that was the kind of place. It's like, well, actually, I just think you need, there's something that needs to come first. And that's something that I'm not qualified for. But similarly, I've done deep work with people. You can do deep work in coaching on things that started a long time ago in their lives. And traditionally, people might say that's the arena of psychotherapy. But if the person is, is functional and the coach is honest with themselves that they are qualified and capable to do that kind of work with somebody, then it's less the topic and more the, the people involved. I like that. It's a nice round summary for anyone listening to know the difference between them all. If we look at your website, The Coach's Journey, and everything you've built around that, how and when did that start? So it started as a group coaching program. A coaching client cancelled on me in about 2017. I got really upset when people cancelled on me at that time. It felt like it was passing judgment, it felt like disrespect, which of course in some ways it is quite disrespectful on somebody to cancel on them when they might have travelled across the city to do it. But I think coming out of my coaching, I decided that wasn't a very useful response for me to have. Like it wasn't really just that useful for me to sit in the South Bank Center at the time where it's where I was doing the coaching and feel miserable. So I was like, well, what can I do? How can I rewire that? And my decision was, I'll do something cool with that time. So don't go to emails. This is a cool practice for anybody to have for a while. Natural thing, meeting gets canceled. Go, you go to your emails, you just lose that time. I was given an hour back by the universe. Uh, you could just pour that into your emails. But instead, I decided to write an article I've been planning to write for a long time. And the article was about my journey with building a coaching business. I just had this in my mind, I should write it. So I wrote it pretty much in that hour. I mean, not quite. And it is by far, I think it's still comfortably the most read article I've ever written. And that accidentally created an audience of coaches for me, for whom something about the way I talked about that craft and what I did uh, really appealed and who the messages that I was giving really landed. Those messages were based on Ideas that weren't all mine, right? There was a lot of standing on the shoulders of giants in that article and in all my work. But I had that. And I was working with a different coach at this point, And I had this insight with him that 
I was kind of holding back from working with coaches, going back to that thing when I first came across coaching of like, is it all real people? Like, is it too pyramid schemey that I'm a coach working with other coaches? I looked around, I was in a group program at the time. So there was a bunch of people in that room, all coaches learning from a, a real master of the craft. And I realized that there were two of us in that room that were interested in working with coaches and six who weren't. And that was like, oh, I can see that it's okay because actually we do need some coaches to support other coaches. So that was an important insight. And I created a group program off the back of that, which for some reason, which I wish I could remember, I called the coach's journey. I mean, I do kind of know it's a play on the hero's journey, which is an amazing piece of work by a guy called Joseph Campbell, kind of mythologist, if people want to check that out and if they haven't come across it. I can't really remember coming up with the idea in a cool way, but it basically grew from there. After a little while, it's funny how business evolves, right? I've kind of noticed this now. I've been doing this long enough. I, I had the idea for the podcast for a while after that, because I'd, when I just started out, I'd spoken to some coaches who were already practicing and learning from them had been really useful. And I kept telling other people the stories they'd told me and wishing that I'd recorded them. So that was the idea for the podcast. And partly I started it because I was like, I wanted to build something that would mean that the marketing for the group program would be partially done on a steady basis instead of what, what usually happened, which the way I enrolled the program was a lot of work January to March every year intensely. And I wanted to make it a more steady work because it was exhausting to do that. Then what happened was that kind of worked. Like the next program filled and like with three in it that year, which was the year of the pandemic. And two of them, I think, were partially there because of the podcast. So it was kind of working. But the year after that, we were having a baby like just when that intense bit of recruitment would have happened. And I was like, I can't possibly do that this year. So what am I going to do? At that point, I redesigned the um, group program to become a different way of working, which is what the Coaches Journey community is now. People can join and leave when they want. It can be really affordable or they can pay more for a more intense coaching experience. And that's been running now for kind of, I think we're coming up to three years. Um, and now what's interesting is, yeah, we're going to mess with the format of the podcast a bit in 2024. Because actually now the thing that's most important to me about the coach's journey is the community and the podcast needs to kind of evolve to match that. So I love reflecting on it because it is a reminder of how these things never end up how we think they'll end up. You know, I thought the podcast would fill my group program every year. And then I accidentally had to change the format of the group program. And then I found that I loved it and there was no need to change it back. Maybe one day I will, because um, the format of this kind of work, and you'll know this from the leadership development work you've done, the format affects the, the outcomes in some ways. And so having a cohort, for example, of people go on a journey together in a very fixed way does a different thing to having people coming in and leaving whenever they want. So that, yeah, that's always a part of the, the decisions about how we support people, I think. Yeah, so you very much had to adapt to what's going on in your life as well as what's being reflected back by the people that you are impacting. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that was a really important, um, I mean, it's part of this whole thing for me, right? From the start in some ways was that idealism about energy was, I shouldn't have to be that I'm worn out by my work. And then one of my great mentors is a guy called Rich Litvin. And he always says, you know, if you're going to be a prosperous coach, one of the things you do is you design your life first and the business second. I don't think he always necessarily always says this, but for me, that's why. Because if you design the business first, then you might find out later down the line that it doesn't support you actually having the surrounding life that is why you want to be prosperous or successful in the first place. And we run that real risk. Like it happens to lots of people in lots of ways that you work a long time for something before realizing that actually that thing isn't all 
it's cracked up to be, and then all that energy can have been poured, there can be real regret then. I always have to ask myself that question because it's really hard, as I find it as a self-employed person, it's often really hard to take time off. And so I often have to ask myself, you know, like a slightly aggressive question, like what's the point in being self-employed if you don't take time off to do this thing, whatever this thing is? Like, why are you even here? It's not necessarily easier to do that when self-employed than it is when employed, I think, weirdly. It's interesting that you've brought up the idea that, you know, you have to design your life first and then you have to design, you know, your business around that. If we go to what leaders might actually have, a leader in a business very much is working for the business and they don't have that control, do they? Good question. In some ways, that's one of the questions of coaching. What is within your control and where can you change things? And helping people make shifts around that can be really important. There are always some things. You know, usually what I find is that there are difficult conversations that aren't being had or there are um, boundaries that speech marks can't be drawn, but really could be drawn. And that those things can often get us closer to what we want without the drastic changes that we sometimes think are needed. Your question is the right one. It's like, do they have control? Where do they have control? Um, but also just to really slow down on it, like um, we've got we've got two little ones now. So the older one is like coming up to three. So it's an intense time. And it reminds me, you know, one of the great pleasures of doing this work is having conversations about what is most meaningful with people, like right in the like most important things to them. And there are these two clients that always come to my mind to remind myself that I could have it worse. One was a senior leader in a kind of um, healthcare product company. And one was a senior leader in an IT sales team. And both of them said pretty much the exact same words to me, you know, to explain their life. I have three children under the age of five, right? So if we had another one about as far apart as these two, we'd be in that situation. Like life was seriously intense for them. But both of them, you know, like the, the changes they wanted with their children were changes that didn't mean working less hours. You know, you think like, I have to work these hours to be successful. And maybe you do, and maybe you don't. But you have it within your control to not be on your phone doing work emails while you're hanging out with your children. And as a parent, like having had that conversation with a, you know, a, a leader in an organization was really useful for me as I was kind of setting my expectations for what is life as a dad going to be like. Because those kind of things, yeah, like we can't always quit our job. We can't always be home all the time. We don't necessarily even want to be. I think the pandemic helped show people that, you know, one of many things it's like, you might think working from home all the time is, is the right thing for you and your family, but it isn't necessarily. And we've got to be really careful about that. You know, I think, for example, the, the ability when we come home from work to be home instead of being at work is often the move. You know, the, in fact, those are two similar moves, aren't they? The, the not being on your phone with your children and the I'm actually at home rather than I'm kind of at home and kind of at work. They're both moves about presence with our family. And um, those kind of things are often much more within our control than we think. And look, better to know, truth is, like, I really believe this, like, I sometimes do this work with, with leaders in deep ways, you know, better to know now that what you want is more time at home than to realize that in, in 30 years when it's too late and your kids have long left home. Um, and if you need to make a change in a big way, like, great. But first, let's like really check what you want and see what we can change right now. And sometimes by just um, really understanding what we want, some of the solutions become really clear.
Are you ready to supercharge your leadership skills? Get your hands on our free ebook, Mastering Leadership Excellence, a brief guide for modern leaders. This ebook is your ultimate companion to your leadership journey. It's packed with 15 chapters covering common modern leadership challenges. But that's not all. At Lander Solutions, we believe in continuous learning, so we're going the extra mile. After signing up to receive this free ebook, every week, for 15 weeks, you'll receive an additional chapter right in your inbox. That makes a total of 30 chapters completely free to support your leadership development and growth. At Lambda Solutions, it's our mission to empower leaders like you, your organizations, and your teams. This ebook is just one way that we're here to support you. Ready to dive in? Visit our website now at www.thelambda.co.uk to access your free ebook and kickstart your journey to leadership excellence today. At Lambda Solutions, we're here to help you lead, learn, and succeed. You've touched on it, this idea of the pandemic and remote working and hybrid working. And I think there is a realm of control that has come into leaders that they never once had before because of that sudden acceleration in technology that people you know, within their team can work from home. They can work from home. They can choose when to work. Work hours can be shifted. And I think that is definitely something that can be explored a lot more. And do you think we're making enough use of that or are people just bumbling along at the moment? Yeah, great question. I think like, again, it's such an astute question from my experience. It tells me you've got some experience of it yourself. So I'd love to hear what you think as well. For me, we've just got to be a bit patient because it was such a big change so fast. One of the things I love about my work is I get to be in a, like I said, a, you know, a healthcare company one day and a software company the next. I mean, in, when I say that, of course, I'm, I should be doing speech marks. I'm on Zoom with somebody in, in those different companies. So you get to get this little, very unscientific picture of what's happening in across the world. And everyone's trying to work out still, as far as I can tell, what to do post-pandemic. So I think the pandemic really, in terms of remote working and hybrid working, it accelerated something that would have happened anyway. It showed people what's possible. So for example, I had a, a member of my wife's family staying with us who is an Australian, he's a very traditional Australian company set up in the 70s, same founders are still there, run, still running the company, and everything used to operate exactly as it was, and it would have never changed until they all got put online and saw what happened. And then there's a choice point. And some companies have gone back to all in person and some gone somewhere different. And I think it'll take a while for this to settle. And there's probably a lot of technological innovation that we still need to happen to kind of make it work. And my suspicion is in this moment, my guess would be the answer is no answer, right? It's that different companies and industries, probably there'll be a different answer for everybody to try and work out how do you get the wonderful things that you get from having a group of people in a physical space together? How do you balance that with the costs of that of all types? In that question, I'm curious, yeah, what have you seen or what are your reflections on that? If you don't mind me asking. Yeah, I think there's all sorts of things that I've seen and experienced. And I think one of the things is definitely that people are finding it harder to know, especially if they're remote, or if they're hybrid, when they are working at home on their laptops, when does the day end? And you've said about, you know, putting your phone away. Like there's a lot of people suffering from that. And the power of the commute, I think people have completely lost that defrag, that time to reflect, that time to get into home mode. And I think walking out one door into another room isn't the same 
and you can't just switch like that. So I think there's challenges being faced all around for that. And I think the other thing is that even within the same organization, there are people that require different things. Some people would work better at home remotely without the distractions of the office, whereas other people need those little conversations, those check-ins just to be productive. So I think organizations are facing two sort of big issues. One is the work-life balance thing that it's very difficult. How do you control that as a leader? And the other thing is this idea of someone needs something different and how do we merge them all together to make an effective team? Yeah. Oh, so much in there. On the commute thing, I, I completely agree. I, I remember it happening. I don't know when it would have been like in 2021 sometime, probably early 21. I'm guessing that. And again, it's not scientific. It's just from the very small sample of, of the people that come across my my desk. But at first in the pandemic, loads of people were kind of amazed and loved having their like hour at the start of the day and the end of their, their commute back. So it's like, I've got this time back. I can I can be in the garden. I can finally get the DIY done. I can hang out with the kids, whatever it is. I can just watch an extra episode of something like fantastic. And then there came a point where, you know, and sometimes I see this in my work, there'd be this pattern, like, this whole set of conversations where people were essentially the, the assignment was to create a commute for themselves for exactly the reasons you say, whether that's like, I don't know how successful people were with these actual things, but the principle was obviously important, which is I need some separation and some time for the the defrag, like you say. So in my life, like, again, it's interesting. I can just notice it. I just heard it. You know, I get a bit of it. So usually me and my wife try and go and get our daughter from nursery together at the end of the day. And that's kind of got that commute feel because we drive for 10 minutes there, we get her, we drive back. But I don't get the defrag of by myself. That means because I pretty much go straight from the computer usually to the car. And it's wonderful to have it with with Emma, but it's not everything that I used to have in a commute. Just to touch two other things you said. One is recruitment becomes really interesting, I think. I just really heard that because in a way, recruitment, if everyone can be remote, becomes more possible. Like, and that's an amazing thing for the world because one of the things that um this isn't my idea. I heard somebody say it once, but one of the things that makes the most difference to, for example, transferring wealth around the world is if a doctor in Nigeria can make more money in the UK than in Nigeria. So if you can get that person here, they can make more money and their skills are put to more use and then that wealth can get transferred. And if, if you're interested like me and how do we help the whole world move in a different way, getting some wealth into the poorer places is really important. And so if you can have people from different parts of the world working together, there's all kinds of choice that's opened up. But there are then challenges to that. My brother-in-law has just started working for a completely remote company for the first time. And I'm fascinated. They've been to Greece for like a like a company get-together, which is what I think the only time in the year, maybe, that they get everybody in one place. And that's hard to imagine. And then the, the, the last thing that comes to mind is just to go back to the questions for leaders about what they can do. The work-life balance challenge is really hard. Like, how do I start and stop? But it is within their control to some extent. Usually the hardest bit of it, in my experience of working with people, is the changing our own expectations and our ability to relate to what we think other people's expectations are. But on a high level, I think I believe it's better for people to have more choice and the choices be harder than to have less choice and the choices be easier. Because we can change our ability to make hard choices But if we don't have the choice to work from home or not, as a really simple example, then we might need to move jobs to change our our situation. Whereas actually, it's just about making hard choices and putting in place 
boundaries that we're not used to putting in place because that's not who we've been. That's a thing that, well, one person, or if you want to work with a coach on it, two people on a call can kind of do work on together. I think it was interesting you said about people making the commute. They've been like trying to redesign a commute. You had this massive trend of people with the garden offices and then walking to the end of the garden to have that commute. I would say much better to do that than to do what I do, which I'm in it, like one of the bedrooms in our house. It would be different. This room doesn't have to get used. We're lucky for anything else. It's not like in our old flat in London where I had to like, you know, well, a guest would have to stay in the room that I was working in or when we had the baby, like I would work from our bedroom quite a lot. It's like, that's different. But I think that, yeah, walking to the end of the garden, that's like not to be sniffed at for sure. And I guess they're creating as well part of the ritual that they had before. And we as humans are very ritualistic. And sometimes you need that ritual, picking up a coffee on the way to work. That element could be replaced by going to the kitchen, making a coffee, then walking to the end of the garden with it, you know, trying to recreate what they had before, despite the fact they felt like they hated that thing before. (laughs) It's a very interesting dynamic. But the the coffee example is great, Chris, because you think what getting the coffee in the coffee shop is about is getting a coffee. And then if you've had that practice for a long time and you take it away and you replace it with making a coffee on your kitchen, you realize it wasn't just about that, right? Not for everyone, but for some people. But in fact, it was about like, the sense of aliveness you get from a bustling coffee shop at 8.20 in the morning and the bit of connection with somebody else and that actually the thing that you want to replace, one of the tough things about the pandemic, and it's the same with all the technology, loads of stuff got changed really fast. And when loads of stuff gets changed really fast, there's a really good chance that you lose some things that made a lot of difference. We've talked about two, I guess. Well, three, the commute, the workplace, like being in a place with somebody and then buying a coffee. And if we change things too fast, sometimes we throw babies out with bathwater without even noticing, I think. And, and the coffee is a great example of that. And like you say, but isn't it interesting that the thing they say they hate, like the commute, and as I understand it, you know, in, in the research, like I remember reading a book which said that in the happiness research, there are really like, there are very few things that definitively, according to happiness research, impact your happiness. Because there's this really, there's this thing where I can't remember for how much, what percentage it is, or they approximate it to. A lot of our happiness is inbuilt. And then there's like 30 to 40% that we can we can play with. But one of the things that always makes a big impact is improving your commute. That was one of the things that came back. And this is pre-pandemic, but it does have an impact on your life, right? If you do 90 minutes of driving in, in heavy traffic every morning and evening, you will be happier if you move to doing 30 minutes of driving with no traffic or 30 minutes of cycling or whatever it is. So, but isn't it interesting that sometimes those things that we hate end up getting replaced? In terms of commute, I've heard the story behind the 12-minute method you came up with, and that's very linked to a commute. So can you just talk us through how you came up with your 12-minute method and what the 12-minute method is? Yeah, yeah, I nearly mentioned this before. Because yeah, the commute, for all this conversation about commute, the commute has been like a huge part of my life. Because in 2016, I was working with not that first coach, but a second coach that I worked with. And that engagement with a guy called Joel Monk completely changed my life in so many ways. And one of the ways was, one of the things we were working on was this thing that we'd called me sharing myself with the world. Like that was the phrase that I'd said at some point. 
we were trying to do some work on that. Like, and there were a few reasons for that. One was it just made me super anxious. Like it was kind of agonizing to post anything on the internet, whether that was a, something I'd made or launching my coaching business or just making jokes on Facebook or whatever. It was 2016. So the world was kind of weird in 2016, but it, it felt like it was a lot about me. And that felt unsustainable for me, like if I was growing this business. And I didn't want life to be like that. It hadn't always felt like that, but it did then. The commute comes in because I'd said once to Joel, there was something about the train journey that I did at the time. And I guess at the time I was working three days a week at Claw Leadership Program that I mentioned before. So three days a week, I would get on the train at Clapham Junction in Southwest London and go into Waterloo and come back. And I liked that train journey for some of the reasons we said, the defrag thing. It also felt like kind of spacious free time. I think because like I was doing the productive thing, which was traveling to work. I didn't have to be stressed that I wasn't being productive or fulfilling my potential, especially because at the time my life was, there were practical things I wanted to change. So I had this sense quite a lot of, I know this isn't where I want to be part-time at Claw, part-time coaching. I know there's, I kind of know where it's going. So my impatience was getting in, but the train journey felt different. It had a freedom to it. So we already played with using it a little bit in a few ways, but one day Joel said an amazing thing, which he, he'd been a visual artist as part of his pre-coaching. He said, I used to like, I used to like painting series of paintings. And what came out was I would write a series of articles. I was doing five days of work at Claw Leadership Program in the next two weeks. So I would do five articles in those two weeks. So I had like five journeys where I didn't have to write something and five where I would. And the game would be right while the train's moving, stop when it stops, proofread it once and post it online. Because remember, this is a, a practice about sharing myself. So the, the sharing was the important bit. And I decided I'd post it on LinkedIn. The joke I have to make is because at the time, no one really read LinkedIn. And it's a bit different now. But what I really meant back then is it was less scary for me to post there because the, again, different now, I almost never go on Facebook now, but in 2016, that was where everything happened really in social media. And really what I meant about LinkedIn is none of the people about whose opinion I'm really worried and scared about are on LinkedIn, <laughs> whereas they were in other places. So that was the challenge and I did it. What I remember is, or how I think about it now is um, it wasn't fun to do it. Like it was kind of agonizing in the way that that stuff was for me then, but it felt good. It's a little bit like going for a run or going to the gym. It can be agonizing and painful. It can be boring. And at the end of it, usually I feel really glad that I've done it because you can kind of feel that it's good for you. Um, that's what it was like. And so I decided to make it a weekly practice then between then and Christmas that year, Christmas 2016. And then I decided to carry it on and I've now been doing it every week since then so we're on as we record this like seven and a bit years of those posts every week and at some point i stopped getting the train as much and i wanted to carry on so i that day i checked i realized oh i'm gonna need to check at some point how long this train journey is and i checked it that day and it was 12 minutes so then i started um setting a timer instead for that for the post when i wasn't doing it and the, the reason i like that is it's entirely arbitrary because the train from Clapham Junction to Waterloo is almost never 12 minutes. Like a couple of times a day, it's scheduled to be that. That one wasn't scheduled to be that, I think. I just checked the time when I got on, checked it when I got off, and the delays and what have you made it 12 minutes. And now, like, like we've said, it's a part of my brand. It's a series of books based on this pretty arbitrary thing. Yeah, and then at some point, the reason the books exist is that I thought, so there's a blogger, author called Seth Godin, and he released a book of his blog. And I realized that I had like a hundred odd blog posts by this point, 120 or something. I was like, 
they're actually quite hard to find because it's quite hard for me to find my own blog posts on LinkedIn because of the way LinkedIn works, let alone somebody else to find them. And I had this thing at the time, one of the ways I think about kind of marketing is I'm I'm always at risk of, um, this is a little sidebar, Chris, you can bring us back on track if you need to. I had to teach myself that a lot of the marketing stuff that I thought I wanted to do was in fact a way of procrastinating and avoiding the hard work. The risk of having that attitude is sometimes you're cutting off your nose to spite your face. So by leaving my blog only on LinkedIn, like that was good because it was the easy thing. I could keep going. There wasn't any danger of me like procrastinating by like spending months transferring it somewhere else or whatever it might be. But it was really hard to find. So if somebody genuinely was interested in my work in going back and reading lots of blog posts, it was a pretty impossible task. One of my clients said she did it once. I was like full of admiration for her of somehow working out how to do that on LinkedIn. I still don't really know. By the way, if anybody wants to read the blog post now, they're on my website at robbyswell.com as well. But we'll get to why you could read them in a different way in a sec. So I thought it'd be good to create a book, even for, if only for five people of the first three years of those blog posts. And then I thought it'd be funny because I could call it, I wrote this book in 12 minutes. Then I sat down with my friend, Steve, because I was like, I'm going to need some help making this into a book. And Steve is a professional copy editor, amongst other other hats he has. And he said, it's a great title because it makes me think if Robbie wrote a book in 12 minutes, I should get on with this stuff that I've been meaning to do and saying I want to do. But can the book actually do that? Like when people read the book, will it actually help them do that thing? And then this was a, like an absolutely fascinating moment. It's entirely obvious in retrospect. And yet I didn't know it, which is that I'd been writing about that for the three years. So we had three years of posts. And if you're writing in 12 minutes on your train or whatever it is, I wasn't spending a huge amount of time thinking about what I was writing about. I was writing about what I was most interested in that week or what I thought somebody else might be interested in that I'd learned or thought about that week. And what I was most interested in at the time was winning my own creative battles, like doing the writing, building the business. And I was doing coaching with people, which another way of thinking about coaching is just helping people do the thing they've been meaning to do and don't know how to do for some reason or aren't doing. So I actually had three years of articles. Once I pulled out like 10 irrelevant ones, um, the rest of them were all about how you finally do the things you've been meaning to do for a long time. So they are now the 12 minute method series, um, ended up being four books instead of one, um, partly for business development reasons, because it's like the reason that everyone publishes series of books. It's a little bit more likely that you, you know, the right people can find their way to the series, but also because each of the books is about a different stage of the creative process, a different place where you can get derailed. Um, so that is, you can get derailed at the start, which is the first book. You can get derailed by giving up before you're done, which is the second book. You can kind of get derailed by not doing good enough work or not trying to do better work, which is what the third book is about. Or you can get derailed by like finishing the work and still not sharing it, which is what the fourth book's about. I like the the story behind the 12-minute method and then building up to the fact that you've been able to make this series of books. So just one small change in your the way you did something has sort of spiraled into this whole business that you've been able to build. In terms of the 12-minute method, how could a leader maybe use what you've learned from the 12-minute method? How could a leader use that in their practice, in their day-to-day? -day? What could they do differently as a result of what you've learned through doing that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and what I love about having a piece of work like the 12-minute method and the books out there is you get these responses from people who are sometimes using it. And sometimes people, obviously, the most common one is that people have taken it and used it as a writing practice. But you do get 
people playing with it in all kinds of ways. And for me, I'll, I'll say there are two, and then we'll see if partway through saying this, I'll realize there's a third probably. I think there are like two main aspects to it that come to mind. So one is, like the thing I didn't say is, when I slowed down with those three years of 12 minutes at a time, I had 80,000 words. So this to me is mind blowing. It's the most obvious thing in the world, Chris, that if you sit down for enough 12 minutes, you end up with 80,000 words at some point, like, and you'd write in every one like that. Of course, that is like logically true. And yet there's a difference between kind of knowing something is logically true and actually knowing it, like actually knowing that if you do a small amount of work on something on a regular basis for a long time, you end up with something massive. So that's like lesson one. And lesson two, I think, that comes to mind for leaders is really what the 12-minute method can be about is the first thing, small amount, regular, long time, big result. It can be a small amount of time doing the important thing, not the urgent thing. So it always, if you're in a busy work environment, that's one of the constant tensions. How do I do the stuff that's for tomorrow or the stuff that, that will make the most difference or the stuff that will change the, the grind of the day-to-day? when the grind of the day-to-day -day is is like in my face so much that I can you know, barely put my phone down to, to hang out with my kids. So it's like, that's the way to use it for me, is always like, what's the most important thing that you never make time for? What's the very smallest amount of time that if you did some work on it every week, and it's always smaller than people think, because you can get really good at doing things. Like if you read the first 12 minute articles, they're, they're sketchy. But by now I'm really good you know, I've practiced 350 times or whatever, sitting down for 12 minutes and writing a thing. So I can do a pretty, like, it's not as good as, like, I could probably improve them all by sitting with them, not all of them, I could improve a load of them by sitting with them for another hour if I wanted to, because sometimes there's like too many ideas in it, or it's a bit confused or whatever. But I've got really good at just sitting down for 12 minutes, writing out an article. So people will get good at doing it in a smaller amount of time than they think. And then people have to work out where the where the shift is, here's the third thing, then maybe actually that I said I would, I would come up with a third. So the third one is remember where this started for me. So it started from this thing that I found agonizing. So this is like the one of the deep moves of personal growth for me it comes from the work of a guy called Stephen Pressfield. And he talks about um, all the way, reasons we avoid doing stuff as, as he calls them resistance. I'm going to slightly get this wrong, but the quote is something like, uh, the places where we feel the most resistance are the most important for our soul's evolution. So if you're feeling huge amounts of resistance about something, you're avoiding something all the time. If you can do that thing, then it will be one of the most important things you can do for yourself. And like, I am now, for me, living proof of that. Like I trusted that. that knowing that I'd read The War of Art, which is the book that's, at, that's from, by 2016. Partly that's why Joel and I were wrestling with this thing that I found agonizing. It's like, if there's this much resistance here, there's something interesting. Well, now... Like we were right. Like, like you said, this whole part of my business and piece of work that I'm really proud of, I've spun out of me doing coaching with Joel. So the three things for leaders then would be, remember small amounts of action repeatedly will lead to something big. Use that small amount of action to work on the thing that you never have time for that you know will make a difference in the medium term. And if you really want to do it, use it for the thing around which you feel the most resistance, because that will likely transform you the most and if you're like me you you know it won't be the same for anybody listening but for me it's you know four books a podcast this conversation probably wouldn't be happening if it wasn't for the 12 minute method and the work that i did on that more meaningful than all of that is the messages i get and they're not thousands of them 
not even hundreds, but the, some of the most meaningful things I get, which is somebody saying, I've been meaning to do this thing for years. And then I came across your work and I've finally done it. And like, there's almost nothing that happens in my work that is comparable to somebody sending that message. So all this abundance and satisfaction, let alone how it's transformed me from small repeated action on a thing that I found really difficult over a long period of time. And it's the fact that the 12 minute method doesn't have to be 12 minutes. It just happened to be 12 minutes for you. Well, and, and only for that as well. So, I mean, the interesting thing, Chris, so for me, one of the reasons it really works every now and again, ever since I published the books, I have to remind myself of it. It's really a really useful, really good reason to write some books is usually they're about the thing that you need to read a book about. I slightly misquote Toni Morrison, the American author. She said, if there's a book that you want to read and it hasn't been written yet, you must write it. And it's not quite true that these books haven't been written, but it's really useful for me that I've written them because, you know, like on everything from we moved house a year ago and it's like an overwhelming project. And one of the things that stops me in my tracks is always the overwhelming scale of things. Like I have a mind which is able to see the scale of things, but a kind of heart that struggles to deal with being able to see that. And I realized, well, I just need to, you know, after a while of panicking and stressing about that, I was like, well, at least I, I know what to do, right? I've got these books. With that, I do an hour a week. And once I've done an hour of arranging to replace French windows or panicking about our oil tank, which is knackered or whatever the thing is that week, I know I've done something. And over a year, that's 50 hours, give or take a bit of the odd week where it hasn't happened or, but, you know, adding in some time where I have. I, I had it with, um, with this office, which was, I was getting so resentful of myself that my office was a mess. I was like, well, I could do 10 minutes a week and see what happens. It turned out in 10 minutes, the first 10 minutes is like the easiest. My office is like 50% tidier now than it was. Yeah, 12 minutes is arbitrary. It doesn't have to be 12 minutes. And what I love about hearing the stories and the way people have used it is that they've, they've taken that too. Like people who get it, get it. It turns out 12 minutes is a pretty good amount of time. Like it's quite a you can write an article, for example, in 12 minutes, um, but you can't really slow down to think too much about it, which is the problem for a lot of people. You can write an email in 12 minutes. So if if the thing you don't do is send the hard emails, like 12 minutes is probably pretty good. But if it's something different, you might need a bigger amount of time. There was one thing that I did in coaching a while ago when I was getting coached myself, and it was sitting quietly for one minute and like you realize like in your life just how you go from one thing to another thing and you feel like oh a minute that's barely anything so someone tells you to sit quietly for a minute and like within about 20 seconds you're looking at the clock going okay I thought it was a minute already so a minute is a lot longer than people think when you slow down and I think that's that's something really important that people need to remember that five minutes you can achieve a lot even if that is just sitting reflecting on your day yeah absolutely and Time's kind of, it's not as linear as we think. That's such a good example of it. It feels different in different ways. And so I think playing with that is, yeah, is, is really important. And you're right. Like some of those meditation apps are great because they are saying like, start with the small habit. That's probably worth saying. Like uh, sometimes when I talk to people about the 12 minute method, they think I did it for 12 minutes a day. It's really important to say it wasn't that because if it had been 12 minutes a day, this habit would have stopped years ago. That would have been too much. I couldn't have managed that scale of it. Like it's another insight from it for me is the tortoise and the hare, right? For me, like if you can go hare speed all the time, great. But the whole point of that fable is that you can't, you'll get distracted, you'll run out of energy, you'll um, go off and have a sleep, whatever it is that the hare does in that, in that story. And the difference, like much better to have something you can keep going at indefinitely 
than to have something that will burn out. I think as well, if you're going at the hair speed, you're missing so much. There's lots of opportunities that would otherwise come up and you're rushing headlong into something which may three days ago have been the wrong direction to go down. So sometimes slowing down, you need to go down those other paths. Yeah, absolutely. And in some ways, like one of the reasons I love coaching is that that's what it does. It's like um, amongst many things, the many things that make up coaching, which is the thing that on the outside looks like a very ordinary slash odd thing to do, makes it magical is that it slows us down when we're doing it so that you end up in a situation where you're having that insight, Chris, where you're like, but even one minute to slow down, like you have to slow down. You probably have to, you have to slow down for the hour of coaching in order to get that insight about slowing down even further. And yeah, I love that. And it, it's really important. I think one more thing on the 12 minute method, I think as well, which our listeners might need is when you had your coaching, you had that 12 minutes, that 12 minute came out of the fact that there was a fixed time, a routine that you put that other habit within. And sometimes when you are trying to pick a new habit, having that space, that fixed time, that other thing you routinely do by sort of pairing it up, it became a new habit, which now you carry on, even though you don't have the commute. Right. Yes, absolutely right. It's a really good point. And actually, I don't think I've ever thought about it that way before. So thank you for that. Because yeah, one of the things I learned about habits through this writing practice is there comes a time, it's in one of the books, I can't remember which one, there comes a time when um, not doing the thing is weirder than doing the thing. And that's like a key moment. So at first, if you're going to write an article in 12 minutes and post it on LinkedIn, that feels really, really weird. It feels goofy. One of the things I like to do with people, they can do this at home, right? is you cross your arms and then you uncross it and then you try and cross it the other way, right? And, and that is what it feels like when you're first starting to do something, like write uh, an article on the train. And then after a while, if you do that crossing your arms every day, then it'll feel a lot less weird. And it might, in fact, in the end, feel weird to cross them the original way. And there's a point where that happens with a habit. Like I remember being in the pub with Emma and it was Friday night and I realized I hadn't written an article. And Friday was my deadline to write one that week. And I knew it that as soon as I got home, I was going to do it. But also by this point, she knew it because I've become someone who does that. Um, but a really good way, it's like the, what would you call it? The, the stabilizers on the bike for the starting point or having somebody walking alongside you is to be able to attach it to something else. And again, the theme of this conversation is that, you know, that thing about the commute that's in there. It's a thing that made a lot of difference for a lot of people um, in creating. You know, it does. It is a piece of space where you would see people on the on the trains. I'm sure it happens now. I just don't do commutes where they are. That's when they're reading, or it's when they're. You know, sometimes they're doing work. Um, all kinds of all kinds of things. But yeah, attaching your habit to something else when you're starting out, something you can't forget. I think that one of the most underrated qualities for productivity or, or getting things done is humility. Like we have to be humble that. I always think I would be smart enough to not need to do ridiculous things in order to, to change my habits or do things. I'm not smart enough. I wish I was, but I'm not. And I have to admit that. And so that's why, like, you know, when I first had a gratitude practice, I got this big book, much bigger than I needed it to be. And I put it under my pillow. So it was impossible for me to lie down on the bed without having this book sticking into my shoulder. Because unless you do that quite quickly, you know, everyone's probably tried it with a calendar reminder on their phone. But you get really good at subconsciously swiping that calendar reminder away within a few weeks, unless you really focus on it. Great observation, Chris. And you can do it with kind of any habit you have already. You know, I've heard of people doing it with that, you know, do your star jumps while you're doing the morning coffee. 
or whatever the whatever the things are right something you can't forget to do one of the things that i always do is like if i want to come home and go to the gym on the way coming home i have to pack my bag the night before as soon as i get in and i take the sweaty stuff out i have to repack it otherwise it's never going to happen again the next day even you know it's something you enjoy you just forget to do and it becomes a habit and soon it just fails so yeah these things you have to make sure the unpacking the sweaty stuff and then packing new stuff in it's putting a habit on top of something that's gonna have to happen so yeah i love it At Lambda Solutions, we don't just explore leadership, we aim to elevate it. I would like to share something extraordinary, our roadmap for your leadership journey, both personally and professionally. Whether you're an individual leader seeking growth or an organization striving for excellence, Lambda Solutions can help you along your journey towards leadership excellence. Picture this, you as a leader, standing at the helm of your organization Surrounded by your fellow leaders, all filled with inspiration and equipped with the tools to steer your teams towards success. That's where we come in. Our leadership consultancy services are designed to transform leaders and with them, their organizations into true powerhouses. If you're ready to transform your organization's leadership, visit us at our website, www.thelambda.co.uk and explore our consultancy services to see the packages we offer and the possibilities they hold. With us, by your side, we can take your organization on a journey of discovery, growth, and empowerment. And it's there, just waiting for you to embrace the potential. Watch as your team flourishes, drives innovation, and achieves new heights. But that's not all. We understand that every leader is unique, and your growth is deeply personal. This is where our coaching services come in. We can be there as a consistent beacon, guiding you through uncertainty, growth, and any challenges, supporting you in the moments of need along your quest for professional excellence. Imagine having someone by your side, a coach who understands your goals and challenges and empowers you to achieve your full potential our leadership coaching services are that guiding hand you've been searching for. Unleash the leader within you with our one-to-one -one coaching packages tailored to your aspirations. Whether you're an aspiring leader, a seasoned professional, or somewhere in between, we at Lambda Solutions are here to support you on your journey. The time has come for your leadership story to shine. Visit us at www.thelambda.co.uk to explore the world of possibilities with Lambda Solutions. had your three things that you loved at the beginning and i wrote them down i tried to pick out one word the craft the creativity and then the leadership side of things and let's go on to the leadership side of things in terms of coaching 
what is leadership coaching for you and how is it different to other forms of coaching yeah so look my <laughs> it's funny uh i was saying to emma just before i came on this call with you i'm worried i think chris is going to ask me what is leadership coaching and she said well even i know that it's just coaching with leaders and she thought that i would have a more complex answer to that but the way that i see coaching that is exactly what it is right so it's an important thing for people to know about coaching as a whole. Coaching describes a kind of set of core processes or um, conditions which seem to help people do their best thinking, create insight, and change themselves. And I think we won't know for sure how that works for a while yet until we've got you know even more advanced fMRI scanners and all these kinds of things. And so I would always say to people that the most important thing if you're going to find a coach is to find the person that you want and worry almost not at all about like what kind of coaching they say they do. Because if you have the connection with the person and they're willing to work with you, which is like a thing, because if they have a really clear niche and you don't fall into it, then they may not be because they may have a particular mission. Uh, but if you find the person, that's a much better predictor of successful coaching than finding someone who says they do the right thing. Mostly that other word that people put with coaching, whether they say they're a relationship coach or a career coach or an executive coach or a leadership coach, that's like a filter. So what I want, I'm interested in leadership. Like I'm interested in what does it take for somebody to change themselves and change the people they lead and therefore change the world. Like I'm really interested in that. It gets me excited. So I want, I want a little bit of filter for people who are interested in that coming to me. Um, so that's one answer, right? That's how I define it. It's just like, it's just me coaching people who in some way are leading. And then I run into some problems with that. For example, I was once working with a woman who to me was the most obvious thing in the world that she was a leader. I thought by any definition, except of course it wasn't by any definition because by her definition, she didn't feel she was a leader at all. And she even asked me that. She was like, I'm, I feel worried that like, I'm working with you and I don't know why you're working with me. And I had to, well, I, I didn't have to, but I was able to explain to her, but like, look at this way you're leading in the community here and with your family here and in the way we met on this program here. And it's completely obvious that she was a leader. I do run into these problems with that sometimes, but mostly for me, uh, it's about what the person is doing. And if they are leading in some way and I'm coaching them, that makes it leadership coaching. So then let me just say a little thing to just kind of complete that, which is if, like me, you spent a lot of time coaching people who are leaders, you do develop some expertise and intuitions in the kinds of challenges that people in certain roles or situations come up with, or the, um, the kinds of frameworks and challenges that might help them move through that. So after a while, it works as a, as a cycle. You know, the longer you do work with a certain type of person, the more you learn about that and the more you can then bring as part of your intuition and expertise so it, it is true also that if you want a relationship coach if you want to have a coach on your relationship then finding somebody who says they're a relationship coach they'll bring some different things but it doesn't for sure mean that they'll be better coach for you than that than i would or you would chris because you don't know until you've done the work with them so i hope that's a suitably vague but also like trying to make it like a real answer to that question if you're working as a leadership coach, leadership is the relationship between them and the people that they work with. And if you're a relationship coach, you're working with them and the person they're in a relationship with. So it very much is the same. It's just within a different context. Absolutely. And, and what I love about the work that I do, because it, it tends to be with people who are in kind of complex roles. And I love to do work with people over a number of months. 
you inevitably get the full texture of their work and their life over a period of three or six months. Because, you know, my first story about clients in this call was about people relating to their families. And so, you know, that comes up because if you're doing the real work with somebody, then you end up doing holistic work with them anyway, because they're a real human. Um, and there's always a sprinkling of, of everything. It's maybe just where you start from as well as the, is the other thing that's different. So I've kind of got two questions, which I'm going to ask at the same time, and you can choose which one to sort of go down. So the first one is, if there is a listener listening right now, and they're thinking about going into coaching, what would they expect from maybe the first session or maybe the process? And the second question is, if there is a listener listening right now who thinks that coaching is not for them, what would you say to them that might persuade them that actually you might want to consider it? Great questions. Hmm. So I, let me do the first one because I think it might answer the some of the second one as well. Because I think some of the answer to the second question, coaching is not for them. My feeling is most of that's about timing and person. Like there are definitely people for whom now is not. And I, I've had times like that. Now is not the time for me to have coaching or this person is not the right person. So really one of the signals you want to give to those people is when might it be the right time? Um, and to give a sense of the first session of the process, I mean, it does really vary. Like the way that I work with people is because I ask a commitment of, of usually months and, you know, it's not insignificant commitments of time or money or energy to work with me on my side or on their side. Like usually the first thing I'll do is I'll do some coaching with them as a gift from me to work out if it's right for us to commit to work over a longer period. And I've tried a few other ways of doing that, and none of them are as satisfactory to me as actually doing some work with somebody. And I learned this from buying coaching as well. When I kind of first bought coaching, I met with a bunch of coaches. And the ones where I had experienced their coaching, it was so much easier to know if I would want to do months of work with them and pay them hundreds or thousands of pounds. So that's how I work. So then you get this sense by the end of it. What is it like for, in this case, me and you to do coaching together, which will be different for me and somebody else or for, for you and somebody else? And then we really know. And usually also in that conversation, we've unpacked some of what the longer work would be if there's longer work. And then what I do at the end of that conversation or in a subsequent one, I'm in then a much better position to make a proposal based on my experience of how we might do that work. So is it a three-month intensive piece of work? Is it six or 12 months, much longer and more expansive piece of work? Is it something new that has to be created for us to do this work now? And that, again, for me, partly because of the people I work with who tend to be in a kind of complex environments, whatever that means for them, but also because it's how I like to work. I'm always looking at the person and trying to work out how do I guess at this stage coaching would best serve them? And sometimes, as I've hinted before, in that conversation, what we come to is, oh, actually, it's not for you right now. <laughs> and I realize that, or they realize it, or, or usually, because my intuition is so built up now, we both realize it at about the same time. It's rare that I say, I've got a feeling that it might not be the right time for us to do this work. It's rare that when I say that, somebody says, no, I disagree. Almost always they say, yeah, I have that feeling too. Because it becomes obvious in the end that for one reason or another, coaching isn't the right thing. And then I can tell people a little bit about what I think the process might look like 
but I'm trying to be honest with people that you know, the truth is we've got no idea how the whole of the process will look like until we've done some of it. But usually the first thing that I do when we've agreed to do work together is we'll create a vision for what success is for our coaching, whether it's three months or six months or a year, because that gives us something to point towards. And then we'll work towards that. We usually do work on uh, vision, mindset, people's energy, strategies and tactics, um, sometimes the mission that they're working on. These are the kind of things that tend to come in with the people I work with at some point. But we'll do that work. And then somewhere through the engagement, we'll slow down again and we'll think, okay, this is what we know now about our work. What's important going forward? And sometimes with somebody, you think you know at the start what the work's going to be about. And it is about that for the whole time. And sometimes at the start, you know, we think we know what the work's going to be about. And one month or two months or five months in, we realize actually it's about something different and we do a gear change. The thing that's important to say about that is it is becoming and will continue to become a more and more common part of leadership development activities is because it is fit for the complexity and the changing nature of, of the world and the workplace. You know, imagine we talked about the pandemic quite a bit. You imagine you're running a training course where you're only teaching and you're teaching people how to be effective in the workplace and you're doing it in February 2020 and you do four days of it with people. By the time you're at the end of March, like a whole bunch of it has changed. But if you're working dynamically with somebody, which is how good coaching is, you know, you have some sessions in February and then you have some sessions in March. And by the end of the sessions in March, you're working on something completely different um, because the world has changed. And of course, the world isn't always changing that much, but somebody's boss is always leaving or their sister is getting ill or whatever it is that changes the landscape of, of life and coaching because it is non-directive in that way. It is a really powerful thing to have. And, you know, the reason I would have loved to have had it when I had those leadership roles is because it would have helped me with like everything that was going on there, where the training I went on at that time helped me a bit with some of it. But even with that, it's like, it helps me put things into practice. Whereas the training I went on, like, like lots of training, remembering some kind of staff supervision management training that I went on, it was great. And I was good at supervision after that, but I still didn't really do it. And whereas if I'd had a coach at that time, and the coaching was about how do I become a better manager? Pretty sure I would have become a much better manager over that that period. You've just touched on it there, which is coaching for me can play a massive role within any form of professional development. Why is it, do you think that you would have been a better supervisor with supervision from coaching? What would coaching have added to that learning process that would have meant that at the end of it, you would have been better? The two things that come to mind instantly so it's a bit like the thing we were saying about the 12 minute method of like the difference between a tortoise approach and a hare approach, but in a slightly different way. So I think that one of the things it would have done is instead of me having this concentrated, I can't remember how long I went on, like two or three day training, right? I learned loads about supervising. And then that was that. That's the hare approach to learning, right? The tortoise approach is like a, an hour every two weeks. Uh, 24 sessions. So that would be like a year of coaching. Let's say it was three, six hour days. So it could have been nine months of coaching at two hours a month. It would have been the same amount of time, but it would have been like, I would have kind of marinated in that much more and had these little drips of be a better supervisor, be a better supervisor, be a better supervisor. So A, it would have just reminded me that that was what I was working on and had this constant check-ins and slowing downs on how am I doing on that. But B, there might be two problems with me being not as good a supervisor as I could have been. One, not knowing how to be a good supervisor. And two, not doing the things I know how to do. And I definitely had both of those. 
And this training did solve the first one, but it did not solve the second one. And the second one is much harder to solve in a training course because if you've got, I can't remember how many of us there were on this training course, which I really went on at Sheffield CVS in about 2011, like there might have been 20 of us on that course. And the reasons that people don't put the stuff into action, there'll be 20 different reasons. Whereas with the coaching, you know, we get to sit there and whilst the surface result might be I'm a better manager, the really powerful result for that will be learning about and then becoming somebody who can actually put this thing into practice, which if I can do for that thing, I can then do for something else and something else and something else. So yeah, there's a few reasons in there why I think it could have helped. And of course, it's not either or, like I was making it as though I could have done that training or done the coaching. A really powerful thing is to have coaching to follow up or as part of or between two or many learning interventions. That's completely my belief in how it should definitely be the sort of hybrid idea that you cover something and then it's how have you been able to put that into practice? Let's reflect on that. And what's come up as you've tried that? Yeah, exactly. So we touched on their self-reflection. Um, obviously, coaching is a place that we can use for self-reflection, but self-reflection at itself is a very important tool that leaders should be using on a regular basis. What do you think should be done to help leaders be able to actually self-reflect because obviously there's no commute now which is when that could have happened what could be done by organizations to help leaders reflect on their own practice their own failures sometimes their own bad habits as well as good habits what could be done yeah one of the things that i've realized one of the reasons i love coaching so much is i've always struggled to maintain the personal self-reflection habits. So I'm a thinking person. So I do a lot of it myself. I like naturally do it. But in terms of the structured ways, which I know would help me, one of the things coaching does is it makes me do it. You know? So like that's a thing to say, first of all. A pattern I've noticed recently with my clients is them a little bit like the we don't have a choice thing that we talked about earlier. This is like a great moment of choice. I've had a few clients recently who have been like, I'm going to reclaim the annual review. Like, I'm going to use it like it's meant to be used. Like, I haven't planted this at all. It was really funny. I think it was three within the space of a few months earlier this year. Who were, you know, it must have been April time or whenever, whenever all the reviews were happening. I'm going to reclaim the appraisal process and actually use it for what it could be. Instead of it feeling like a box ticking exercise where we're, we just have to do this thing because everyone's told to do this thing and the manager's not really interested in it. It's too busy to do the reading and the writing up and the person thinks it's a waste of time. And it's like, oh, I don't really know. I haven't done the goals I said I would do. I don't want to do it. Like, I'm going to reclaim it. I'm going to actually use it as a way to take, in this case, it was more like to take what I've loved about coaching, try and put it back into the, where can I put it in the workplace so that I don't lose the benefits of coaching when the coaching ends? So that's one, like make the annual review process a real process. Maybe the shift would be this. Make the primary function of the annual review process about the individual and the secondary function to be like to collect data and information for a for a goal setting system, rather than the primary function being that and the person having to like fight their manager and the computer to to get it to be meaningful. I think the line management space is one place that it can happen more. You know, it goes back to the the training. The first, perhaps my first interaction with coaching might have been on that claw training. Right, everyone who came through a claw program went back with at least a sense that. Coaching is a tool I can use as a leader or manager. So those those conversations can be a task-focused conversation, or they can have a little bit more space for reflection. And all that needs is a few more open questions and a little bit more listening. 
and a little bit less the manager giving the answers. And then the other thing that came to my mind is anyone can do this, right? Because you could do 12 minutes a week, right? That would be a super powerful thing to do the 12 minute method. You know, you could have three questions. It would be, what's one thing that went really well in the last week? What's one thing that could have gone a lot better in the last week? And then what's one thing I want to do differently next week? If you gave each of those questions three minutes and then spent the other three minutes reading back your answers from last week, I think people would see you know pretty good change pretty quickly. And if you're an organization, I don't think anyone's done this yet. So if anyone's listening, do this and then tell me you've done it because it'd be super cool. You could make that the culture, that it's just a 12-minute check-in. And you could share them somehow. I've heard of organizations who put them on Slack or whatever the platform they use is. So there's some public accountability and there's some awareness amongst other members of the team because sometimes enrolling other people can be can be useful too. I think another question that could be added to your three, which is really good for self-awareness, might be how did I get in the way of myself this week? Yeah. It's beautiful. It's really beautiful. Yeah. How did I contribute? You know, what could I change for next week? Yeah. This, I mean, I guess the what I would say about the questions is you could start with like the four that we've just given there. And then the thing will be to change them and play with them. But usually, like you can feel a good one when you've got it. I had a practice for a long time, which is much shorter than this, which was, it would take me like two minutes every morning, but I would do it every morning or every work morning. The question was, what is in best service of my goals today? And I had done some deep or good goal setting work. It took me like two minutes to think about my day, answer that question, look back at the day before and see what had happened with those ones. And it was a very, it was a very effective way of training myself to waste less time on pointless things and get to the stuff that actually mattered sooner. And that didn't take 12 minutes even. you mentioned about the uh, performance management, the appraisal process, which I thought was really interesting. You said about the data collection and then the individual bit. And that sort of spurred in my mind the, the difference between a manager and a leader, because we've got this line managing or line leading sort of what approach are we doing? And for me, I always look to define it by management is very much about the who, the what, the where, the when, the how, whereas the leader really is about the why this is why we're doing something and bringing others along with it. When it comes to line managing, then you said about claiming that space as a space for reflection. If we were going to change it then from line managing to line leadership, which is something that I, I'm playing around with, how might a coaching style conversation take place within that space? Yeah, I love that distinction. Line leading feels like it's got a lot of, a lot of ground in it. I hope you do explore that more. Um, I'd love to hear more about when you get into that, but it just it kind of does spark something. Managers and leaders will find their ways of doing this that are unique to them. I always think it's really important to say, Deb Barnard, who used to run those trainings at Claw, actually, which I used to do a long time ago, she would always say like people would get stressed out because they'd come across coaching and they would project onto her that she was saying to do coaching all the time now in every meeting, everywhere, always. And she'd be like, no, look. If someone comes to you on their first day and they say, where's the photocopier? Don't say like, well, where do you think the photocopier is? Or how might you find the photocopier? Just tell them where the photocopier is. And sometimes what you're, whether you're a leader or a manager, like, or however we define those things, to deal with the complexity of the world, you will need 
the full range of moves available to you. All organizations and teams will sometimes need a command and control leader who will tell them what to do. And sometimes they will need the exact opposite of that. And there is a time and a place for all those skills. And we won't all be equally good at all of them. And that is all okay. Like whoever you are and however comfortable you are with a coaching style of leadership or command and control or something different, all of that in my view is okay. But the coaching thing does change things. And many people haven't had exposure to that because we're mostly not taught in that way. Although like, I imagine it's changed since I was at school somewhat. Um, and there's definitely more coaching skills being taught to teachers, which I think is fantastic. But to actually answer your question, what you would learn in an afternoon of coaching skills training would be to ask open questions instead of closed questions and to listen more to what the person is saying than you normally do. And if you were going to learn a little bit more in an afternoon of coaching skills, you would have two more things. You'd have a start to the conversation, which would be something like, what do you want to get out of this conversation? And an end to the conversation, which would be something like, okay, and what are you going to do as a result of this conversation? So if all we did in that line management space, this would aid reflection would be, you know, the question could be, what do you want to get out of this meeting today? Or um, how can I support you today? That's a really open question as well, because it's not quite the same as having a coach. So it's like people do sometimes want their, their line leader, their line manager to, to help them with something. But to ask that question at the start, get a really clear agreement for what are we here to do in this meeting? And then to ask the person questions first, like often this is a massive, it feels really weird and uncomfortable for somebody at first, but it's a huge relief because it usually turns out that if you ask somebody, well, what are the options for how you might do this? They'll tell you five options. They'll then choose one. And you didn't have to do any of the telling or take any of the responsibility. And you've also helped them build their capability. So broadly, it would be to perhaps ask more what the purpose of the conversation is for that person today, to ask more open questions, to listen more and say less, and then to ask them at the end, okay, what are the most important actions that you're going to take? Now, it's probably worth saying that if you start doing this straight away with somebody, they'll get weirded out by it. So you might need to tell them what you're doing. Like I'm playing with this thing that I heard Robbie and Chris talking about on a podcast, or I've just been on this training where I learned this thing. I'm going to try it in these meetings. Then we can work out if it's useful. Um, also, you might want to keep some time in those meetings to do the old thing because most people aren't, it's not a simple enough distinction to say that they're no longer a manager. Sometimes organizations do that, but, but not always. So they might, you might need to say, okay, now we need to do a bit at the end which is like, these are some things I need you to do in the next two weeks to keep these processes moving forward and make sure that this client gets the you know, thing they're due to get and all that kind of thing. So there's some ideas. I'm, I'm curious though, what you heard in that and what, yeah, what your reflections on that are. I think right at the end there, what you just said, I think was really good because I was going to ask you about that, but then you pointed it out. The bit about you have to keep some of your role as you are technically managing them. You are, you're never just a leader. You're never just a manager. You're a bit of both. And what you said there was the coaching comes up front and then the managing bit comes later because I think that space completely changes if you did the managing at front and then you try to open up the coaching space. That just would not work. Yeah, and also what I've found, Chris, is because I do quite a lot of mentoring in different ways these days. What I've found is the mentoring I do, so the giving advice is much more effective after a coaching bit. So to really understand before you jump in with the advice, what the situation the person is facing. This is where, all going back to that early bit of the conversation, it's all blurry. So if you're going to do mentoring, because really good mentors will always be doing some coaching. 
they'll always be listening and asking questions as well as offering advice or connections and all that kind of thing. But you're absolutely right. To have a coaching space first, I think is the more effective way to do it because sometimes a load of the stuff that you would have picked up in the managerial bit will have dissipated or be unnecessary once the coaching bit's happened. And the other thing I think I wanted to return back to the example you said about the photocopy a bit, because I think that really does point out something major. So if someone came to you and they said, where's the photocopier? And you just turned around and said, well, where do you think the photocopier is? That one question can be taken in so many different ways, depending on the space you're in, the way it's delivered, because that can be very patronizing, or it could be, oh, where do you think the photocopier is in a sense of where do you think it should be? And then you're sort of, you're opening up that understanding of the space around you. So I think the power of how the questions are delivered is really important if someone's going to try a coaching style and also the space as well. I was thinking, as you were talking through there, I was picturing what the line manager space is for me. I think if you're sitting in two like armchairs opposite each other, that works where at the moment you sit in opposite sides of a table, it's a very different space. So what to you would be the best space? within an office space that could be used as the coaching space what would it look like yeah i think you're right like across a table not so good but i've i had great line management conversations in all kinds of places in offices in canteens and sometimes in meeting rooms there are definitely better spaces and worse spaces but we can create the the space between the people and if the person is doing great management great support great supervision often with a coaching element to it that's the most important thing. My gut feeling response to it is that it's a little bit like some of the themes of our conversation. It's going to be different for every two people. You know, like I love it around here. We've moved out to the countryside in Warwickshire and we're in this little like blink and you miss it kind of speech marks village, Hamlet probably you call it on a main road. But across from us, weirdly, it's got a little business park. What I love is when I go out for a walk, from our house, which I try and do, because otherwise, why am I living in the countryside? And for all the reasons we talked about, about the, about the, the defragging, sometimes I see what I'm 95% sure is like a team from one of those offices going out for a walk, I'm guessing for their team meeting. And if you've got that available to you, like that's a great resource to use sometimes. Yet, I think that there is something important to be said about meetings probably, which is that a lot of them are terrible. And so to not be one of those, we, you know, that's probably another whole nother episode that we have to do to do that, but to manage the energies. For me, I think it's less about the specific space, more about being playful with space and then bringing the intention for it to be really useful. Yeah. Like, like you said, you as the leader create the space as well. So it's what you do to make that space conducive. So the other person feels safe that they can reflect in your presence. I think that's key. Yeah, absolutely. Did you know that Lambda Solutions is your gateway to unlocking the secrets of effective leadership, as well as exploring leadership psychology? We not only have this podcast where we explore some of the most topical concepts within leadership and connect you with the wisdom and experience of a community of leaders, we also have a growing treasure trove of leadership wisdom just waiting to be discovered. 
I would love to invite you to explore the Lambda Library, our very own hub of thought-provoking articles and blogs, carefully crafted to spark your imagination, challenge your thinking, and ignite your leadership potential. The best part? It's completely free, and we are continually looking to update our content to keep you engaged and informed. It's all part of our dynamic journey of learning, and we can't wait for you to join us. Whether you're a budding leader, a seasoned professional, or simply looking to enhance your leadership skills, our content caters to your growth. We would also like to extend our hand. If you have a message to share and would like to submit an article to our library, simply get in touch through the contact form on our website. We would love to add your wisdom to our leadership library. Are you ready to begin your exploration? Simply visit our website at www.thelambda.co.uk and navigate to the Lambda Library. You'll find our growing library of leadership articles waiting for you. You can then add us to your bookmarks to supplement your sources of consistent, high-quality leadership content. Discover insights, uncover strategies, and elevate your leadership game. So what role would you say that a external coach can play in the productivity of an organization? What sort of role could they play in your view? It's a really careful one. It has to be managed really well. But I think that often it's really powerful to have an external coach because of the kind of things we've just been talking about, because it creates space. I mean, also people sometimes do it by having an internal coach whose job is only to be a coach, but to have the separation from the line manager, like you said, great observation with the, where do you think the photocopier is? Who's asking that, where they're asking it and how they're asking it uh, makes all the difference. And, and a big thing is about the agreements you have. You know, for example, usually with an external coach, there'll be some agreement of confidentiality in some way. And it varies from agreement to agreement because if the organization is paying, they have some right to know what's been focused on. Albeit, if I was an external coach coming into an organization, I'll always say there needs to be at least some space for private goals between me and the, the person I'm working with. And almost always, wherever possible, I want the person I'm working with to do all the feeding back to the organization. It can't always quite be like that, but that's the best way because that really holds the confidentiality, which again, usually coaching is completely confidential. And that helps create the trust, which helps create the space for the reflection that we've been talking about. But it can be an amazing thing to have external coaches working in an organization, to have a shared experience of either a person or probably in my view, ideally, like a group of coaches. But for the reasons we spoke about earlier in the call, that I'm not the right coach for everybody. Much more likely that if we have three of us coming in to work with an organization, then one of us will be right for almost everybody in the team. But that outside perspective... Those fresh ideas, the really pure space for the person to focus. And I think one of the most interesting things that I didn't expect to be true since I started coaching with organizations is I always ask, is there anything that if this person brings it to coaching, it's off the table? You know, if, if the company is, is paying, every person I've asked that of has said no. I wasn't sure they really got it. So I, I started asking, even if they want to leave. And every time I've asked that, the person I've asked it has said, yeah, even if they want to leave, because if they want to leave, 
it's the best thing for everybody if they leave in a productive, effective way. I've been really amazed by that. I mean, that's usually an HR learning and development person. So the line manager might feel a little bit differently. But yeah, for me, you know, that space that's separate to the line management structure, where different power dynamics are at play and different incentives are at play, it can be really powerful for helping people do their best thinking, most creative thinking. I think you touched on it because I, I was playing around with that question with trying to get the external versus internal coach bit there because there is a tend towards, oh, there's this thing called coaching. Okay, let's let's hire an internal coach. And I think just that energy of when there's someone external brought in for you to talk to, that energy that person gets by talking to an external coach is very different to the energy they'll get by just going off and talking to someone. But if it's set up well, like again, they're all great options. I heard a written interview with the CEO of Shopify recently, or maybe it was the COO, somebody senior there, and they valued coaching so much that in the end they had gone and hired a whole bunch of coaches because it just made scaling coaching in their organization much more straightforward. And because there is the advantage of it, of course, is more context. Um, and again, this has to be managed well. For example, I have some colleagues who a bit like we were talking before, who run team coaching for a leadership team. And between each coaching session for the team, where the whole team is there, all the members of the team will do one-to-one -one coaching with one of the people who run the sessions. So everyone is coached together and then separately by a team of, in their case, usually two coaches. At that point, there is an incredible amount of pattern recognition that as long as this is agreed at the start, the coaches can feed back to the organization saying, this is some of what we've seen, both into the times when the teams gets back together or potentially back overall. And to know that stuff on a systemic level, rather than, you know, it's like the individual thing might stay confidential, but if the coach has a bigger view of the system in a, an unusual way, which a coach often will, if they're coaching five or 10 or, or 20 people in an organization, then that can be really valuable for the organization as well. One of the key things that one of my mentors says that I always remember just to tie this bit up is it's really important that we know what the person who's paying, what the job is for them. So like, why is there a coaching intervention for the organization? To have that really clear is partly why I'm asking those questions like, is there anything that's off the table? Because although we might have those private goals for integrity, if the goal for the organization is, I don't know, launch a new branch of something or um, stop people leaving, you know, whatever the, the goal is, we need to have that really clear. And if the organization's paying, they need to, and, and really the coach, any coach they're hiring should help them understand what that is. Now, I kind of believe that coaching people generally is good for an organization, but that's a quite a long game thing as the, as the person leaving might, might be an example of. In terms of your experience coaching, and in particular, you focus on coaching leaders, what are the common challenges which you are finding coming out, let's say, in the last three years? What are the common challenges that you have seen? Yeah, probably, I mean, probably we've, we've talked about them, Chris, like there's a, a work-life balance challenge, a mental health challenge. There's a productivity challenge, which I think is fascinating because everyone is busy. I sometimes run workshops with titles like how to be more productive. And you get this great split between who thinks they could be more productive, like everybody, 
and who feels like they're busy. Everybody. So everybody's busy, but they're obviously doing things that even they know aren't productive. I think that's about how complex the world is. So it's partly about like the distraction age we live in. Like it's really hard. We've got lots of, it's a genuinely hard thing to do to stay focused amongst everything that's going on. What are the other challenges? I think there's a, there's like a meaning challenge for a lot of people. Like what's this for, for me? Like, why am I doing this? I don't think organization is a really hard thing for an organization to address. You're kind of quite brave to do it, but that's a challenge that's, that's going on. And then there are probably ones that aren't particularly common to the moment we're in, but are common to my work because of where it's gone and where it's been. There's one of the classic, I mean, in a way it's, it's what coaching is for, or I see it as being for. One of the challenges is like, for my leadership or my organization to go to a new level, I have to become somebody new. Like I've run up against the extent to which this way of being that I've been using so far can take me and I have to become somebody new to do that. And that is how, you know, if you think about the 12 minute method story, that's what I'd run up against really. Like now that I'm doing this, that what I'm doing is calling something new from me and I have to become somebody new to do that. And that was not a process free of agony and, um, and challenge. But on the other side of it is something really important. When it comes to some of these challenges, if there is like a, a regular theme going across people that you're working with, there is always the temptation of, okay, I've thought of a solution for you, but as a coach, that is not your place or your role to be. How do you deal with that personally? The fact that you can help this person just by saying something, but you've just got to hold it in. How do you deal with that? I think the first move the reason that it's important to do training or real practice in coaching is to get confident in what the coaching can do by itself like what the purest coaching that you might learn in a training course can do is practice that so what i did was i practiced that so that i got a real sense of okay what can this do and then i played at that like i played with it you know how can i with you know with great mentors and supervision and, and training how can I sprinkle something in? And the way that I play with it is I, I contract for it at the start. You know, I agree it with my clients. I say, look, I'm not somebody who holds coaching as a pure thing where I'll never give you any advice or suggestions or ideas. I don't think anyone, I don't think that is what any of the coaching bodies mean personally. And then it's important that you know, as my client, that you don't have to accept any of those things. Like I'm going to put these ideas in, frameworks, thoughts, and sometimes they'll be perfect, but when they're not, that's just as interesting as when they are. And that's my way of trying to break some of the power dynamics that might happen. For example, if, you're, if your manager says, <laughs> here's the thing, it's like it kind of is implied that you should listen to what they say. And I, what I'm trying to do is say, we're here together doing this thinking about how you move forward. I don't want to have to hold back if I've had a client who's worked on this before, and it might be really useful for you to know what they found useful. When I'm giving you that, it's to help your thinking not because I think that's the right thing for you to do. And then I really listen to my intuition and I kind of try and check, is this because of me or is this for them that I want to say this right now? It always reminds me, I heard a thing once, which is the best time to break the rules is when breaking the rules is more in the spirit of the rules than sticking to the rules. So with coaching, that would be, so it's like Harry Potter, right? Is the, is the example of that to make it real. Uh, at the end of Harry Potter, they always get deducted house points for like being out of bed at night. And then they get given a million house points for saving the world from Voldemort. Because it's all about 
the staying in bed at night is to keep the students safe. So more in the spirit of keeping the students safe is saving the world from Voldemort than staying in bed, right? And that's the kind of thing. So break the rules of coaching when you know the rules of coaching, which is really how I have done that. Kind of all for the greater good kind of thing. Yeah. Although people use all for the greater good for all kinds of things. Don't they? <laughs> um, that, no, but that is exactly what it is for the greater good of the person I'm working with, like stay in service of them and their goals and their growth. Um, and if I'm doing it for them, as far as I know in that moment, then that's the best I can do. And if I'm doing it for me, don't do it. So one of the last things before I ask my final question that I wanted to do was I wanted to play around with a just a situation and just ad lib, you would just give me just a little bit of what you might do as your role as a coach. So if we were to imagine a client uh, so there's a leader who's struggling with motivating their team. I think that's a big thing you said about meaning. Um, they run a team, let's say it's 20 people within an organization. The productivity of their team has kind of taken a little bit of a turn for the worse. Um, their team predominantly are remote. And um, once a week, they are encouraged to come in. But the days that they come in is all staggered. Um, what would you do? with that leader what sort of work would you play around with that leader what would you try and tease out of them to try and help them solve the problem that they have of motivation and productivity starting to take a dive it's a great question and fits in with the things we've been talking about you know um but like as the coach the first question it would be all about understanding what's stopping them and what they want to be doing um and there are so many frames that might come in there as you got into that it's like um i mean it's hard to know exactly because it is interesting to make it abstract we, we could play it out in some ways, but for me, it'd be about, well, what's stopping you? What's going on? What's the, what are the things that you want to be different? And what are the things that are within your control? And we get there. And like, I can imagine a few themes that might come out. So I can kind of guess them. This is a bit of my pattern recognition. Going back to what you just said, I wouldn't name these things, right? I would ask the person questions to try and find out what is the actual problem here? Like, what's the gap between what they want to have happen and where they are now and what's stopping them from bridging that gap. That would be the whole like conversation. But I can imagine, for example, it might be, I'm scared of having hard conversations with people. Like I'm scared that if I tell them all, they have to all come in on Wednesdays now, half of them will quit. But what we really need, what I really think we need is we need to have one Wednesday a month when everyone's there. So we actually get to speak in person together. Um, or it might be, I'm just not very good in team meetings. And I think that the problem is we have these Zoom team meetings. I don't know how to run a good team meeting and I want to be able to do that. Um, or it might be, um, actually, I think, I know the productivity looks like it's going down, but I actually just think that's a terrible measure and everyone's super stressed and we need to stop everyone being stressed so that that measure improves. But actually everyone's doing really well because a lot of it's about the external uh, environment of the economy. And actually we just need to ride this out. And the real challenge for me is to talk to my boss so that she gets that so that I'm not getting in trouble for it. And those are, you know, you can just suddenly see that all three of those are like really different reasons for the same problem. Um, and we might move in any number of different ways with that. But for people who are listening, like one of the most powerful ways to work on, which could be on any of those, right, is an experiment-based system. So it would probably be, you know, in any of them, if it was the difficult conversations with individuals or the team meetings or the boss, it's like, okay, well, next time you're in a conversation with your boss, really pay attention to what's, what's happening, what you notice, try and change one thing, make it a good experiment, right? Keep everything the same, just, just play with one thing and then see what happens. And, and it, it can, that can be a really powerful way of just, uh, just beginning to change things. 
And I guess in a sense, by doing that, changing that one thing, you sort of take a little bit of ownership of something and you empower yourself a little bit by doing something different. Right. And what's funny is sometimes by um, people can read the inner game of tennis if they want like more detail on this kind of thing. But sometimes when you just pay attention, some of the problems that people have with presentation skills, with difficult conversations, is because of the energy they're carrying, the self-talk, the worry. And if you just start getting more present in those conversations, the results sometimes come with far less doing than we think we would need to do. I wanted to play that role out, that situation that we had, because I feel like there will be a lot of leaders that might have a lot of that. We have remote teams, maybe motivation is taking a turn for the worse. A lot of it there. So you've picked out three things, I guess, that is just from your experience, common things that may be coming from people. Yeah, absolutely. So for my final parting question that I do at the end of everything is I ask what are the most important lessons or pieces of advice that you would give a young person starting out in their career right now, whether they're a young leader or a young coach, what would you give them? Funny actually, because tomorrow I'm going to do a talk in a school, which I never do. So I have, I have got this little in mind, but th from this conversation, Chris, what comes up is probably those 12 minute method lessons. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe there's two. So maybe it's the 12 minute method lesson about like a small amount of action repeated over a long period of time has a lot more power than, than we would expect. And the other one might be somehow to get across that shift we were talking about for managers to what's possible if you give space to people, reflective space, instead of having to know all the answers. Because um, the truth is in when you move out into the real world, like sometimes when you're in school and I, I was good at school, like I could know the answers, like most of them for the exams that I did. And I did know most of them in the real world. You know, you can't know the answers because there aren't any answers, not like right or wrong ones. And so when we get out into the world, we have to kind of be able to deal with that uncertainty. And one of the things that helps that, that coaching is a practice. You practice not knowing a lot. You practice like, like I, I said with that example, I don't know what it would be. That'd be the first task. It's like, I don't know what will help you here. How do we find that out together? So to give people that chance early on to really pay attention to the questions and the listening, um, I think I'd put that in there as well. I like that. The idea of the power of, I don't know the answer, so I'm going to ask questions. That's very much a coaching approach to it. Yeah. It requires and shows a real belief in the person you're asking the questions of as well. It's one of the things like, it's just wonderful to watch when you ask somebody, you know, you get it sometimes I'll say, you know, to somebody, what do you want to get out of this conversation sometimes people say i just want you to tell me the answer and i know by now from experience that when people say that they almost always have the answer in them like by the end of the call we'll have the answer without me having had to tell them and if i told them an answer it would have been a much worse answer for them anyway that's really good to finish on that thank you so much yeah it's been a, it's been a pleasure chris there's a lot in there and i can i can see a lot of stuff that's going to be taken on awesome yeah no thanks so much it was super fun until next time, remember, to lead requires us to continuously learn.